0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's Word in order to live God's way. I do pray that you would bless us today as we spend some time, won't be primarily looking at your Word, but I pray that you would bless our minds and our souls in spite of us. And God, give us the grace that we need tonight to understand what you are saying. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible is the most important source of truth, bar none. Anybody agree with that? Okay. We need to establish that because it is absolutely important that we understand where true knowledge comes from. And true gospel knowledge, true knowledge that saves our soul, comes from one place. Now, it is true that all truth is God's truth, but not all truth is gospel truth. You understand the difference there? One, the gospel truth is what saves our souls, but there are true truths that don't have anything to do with our salvation and you know pick random things how many atoms are in the planet of Saturn well there is a true number to that I have no idea what it is there is, but there is a true answer and even if somehow we could figure out what that answer is it would have nothing to do with whether we were saved or not and in our culture today there are many things that are true and there are many things that are true they're facts which is slightly different than and I'll get into that as we go through the the series here but these facts are sometimes twisted or or sometimes they're just told in downright lies in such a way as to turn us away from the truth but I want to defend my project here of, pre, of teaching in a uh, Sunday night series because I, I do, I feel very funny uh, doing a lecture series when I'm normally doing preaching. Uh, so I hope you aren't struggling with that as much as I am. But I do want to give at least some basis for why I'm doing that. And I find this basis among other places in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Sounds like I'm hurting my case here at the beginning, but we'll get to it. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. We're going to get to that in just a second. And he did all this, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, what we get out of here is, first of all, Paul did not come across cocky. He wasn't John Wayne walking into the town with his philosophy six-shooter's ready to shoot everybody but Paul came into town knowing as a man who knew the truth and when he came into Corinth he came in in the demonstration of the spirit and of power now if you look into this this could be taken a couple of different ways and actually i think that there's two perfectly legitimate ways that bible believing christ honoring people might take one and i take the other and It's fine. And the first one of these, either Paul meant in the power of the Spirit when he did this. That's a. It's possible the Greek um, construction there, and he meant by this that miracles were done to prove his apostleship. Now, that's that's completely legitimate. That is a very good possibility. What Paul is getting at here, because he even says, later in the same book, that all of the signs of an apostle, miracles being one of them, were done among you with great fervency. And and the point of this is so that you would know that I, Paul the apostle, am an apostle and have legitimate reason for teaching you this. Or, it could be taken right here that he meant that he came in power, he uses this word power and that miracles could still be involved in my understanding of this verse. But he also came demonstrating something else, something that he's calling in the Spirit. And because of the context, remember, meaning is always determined by the context, by what is around it. And if you if you just take a verse and rip it from the text, you could say that this verse means whatever you want it to mean. But only if we look at it in the context do we get a real understanding. And in this context, the very next thing that Paul references is the wisdom of men. Now, the next two weeks, that's almost all that I'm going to be talking about, is the quote-unquote wisdom of men. And and in both of these cases, we're going to see how foolish is the quote-unquote wisdom of men. And I think it's at least possible that Paul is being used by the Spirit to destroy the world's systems of thought that hold people captive. And that's what he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Some of you might think that's a little stretch, but given the problems that were going on in Corinth, I don't think it's a terrible stretch, but I I really don't have time right now to defend it more other than to give you two more verses. And the first one is in 2 Corinthians 10.5, where he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now notice what's going on here. He's destroying arguments... And opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God. That's exactly what I want to do these next five weeks. I promise you're going to see this verse at least a couple of times. And he does that so that we can take every thought captive to obey Christ. And then he says in Colossians chapter two, verse eight, he says, see to it, pay attention. Think about what's going on. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Gordon Fee, a respected commentator, uh, in writing about the first passage we looked at, 1 Corinthians 2, says that God is in the process of overturning world systems. And it should not surprise us one lick that one of the methods that God uses to overturn the world systems is the miraculous. Is God uh, sending the Apostle Paul in power to go into a place to show, hey, I am the Apostle of God. You need to listen to what I say. And it should also not surprise us one lick that we have people who think about what the world is thinking about so that we can show them the falsity, so that we can show them the emptiness of what they're saying, so that they can then be more open to the truth, okay, how you guys doing? Are you with me? Okay, uh, please do ask me after the after our time, I will hang out. There's, I'm only water skiing through this subject. I'm sure there will be questions. Please do ask me uh, so that I can know your understanding. So, if what we are going to do over the next five or six weeks, depending on how long it takes us to cover some of the material, if what we're going to be doing is destroying these arguments, is overturning the vain, empty, worthless so-called thoughts of the world, then what we're going to have to understand is some semi-technical stuff. And what I promised throughout is I was going to bring this down to McDonald's level. Not everything is going to be able to fit there, but hopefully it will. And so the first thing I want to help us to get a grasp of are glasses. Everybody wears glasses glasses. Now, not everybody wears physical glasses in order to see the world, but everybody has a pair of glasses on that they see life. They understand how things are going on. And I want to give you uh, what I consider to be a very good definition of this. And oh, by the way, it's on your sheet, on your notes, Let's see, it's the one that says getting a good view of things. And underneath what is a worldview, Uh, James Sire uh, wrote a few books, but in in one of them, he defines worldview. And he says, A worldview is a commitment. Now, I want to stop right there. What is a commitment? A commitment is something that your will decides. You decide, I am going to be committed to something. I am going to hold on to this. A worldview is not some fly-by-night, flighty thing, but it's a decision that someone makes about something. That's the first important thing that we need to get when we're talking about how people view the world. It's a commitment a fundamental orientation of the heart. Now remember, the heart in Scripture is usually not talking about this thing that goes thump, thump, thump in our chest. It does do that sometimes, but usually the heart is talking about the center of a person. He's talking about the center of our spirit, the non-material part of us, where we make our decisions and this fundamental orientation is a way uh, not like a compass because a compass will turn and it'll keep pointing at that north but it'll keep us in one trench Uh, when i was in alaska i didn't actually see this but i saw uh, someone had a, a sign that said be careful what rut you get into on this road because you'll be in it for the next 35 miles and that idea, I, I saw some of those roads, and we saw them in Haiti too, didn't we, Gary? Uh, but <laughs> it's this orientation of the heart that keeps you in a line. And this worldview is a commitment, is a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story. Uh, that's the most popular way to express worldviews right now. Uh, if you don't believe me, go watch Star Wars. That is essentially, it is fundamentally a worldview statement. And if you don't get that, you miss the whole point of George Lucas spending millions of dollars and making billions. Or in a set of presuppositions. Now, presuppositions are thoughts you have before you get somewhere. And so, for example... uh, my presuppositions when I get to opening my Bible, one of them is that God is going to speak to me when I'm reading this right now. I am going to have access in part to the mind of God. Now, I want to stop right there because that, that's a preaching moment. Do you realize on your nightstand you have access to, to the most brilliant being on the in history of the universe, that needs, you need to remind yourself of that. That's a presupposition. It's something I know before I get there. Now, these presuppositions are assumptions which may be true. In this case, I believe I am true, right? Partially true or entirely false. A worldview can be Entirely false. If you were here a couple of weeks ago when we heard about our missionaries in Papua New Guinea, those New Guineans had some false worldviews. They didn't understand reality. But these are these worldviews are those that which we hold consciously or unconsciously unfortunately, most of the time unconsciously, because people don't think about what they think about. You should write that down. Think about what you think about. Consistently or inconsistently, in other words, somebody might take a little piece of this, a little piece of this, they throw it all together, they've got worldview stew. And these thoughts are about the basic constitution of reality and provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. Okay, so back to simple language. A worldview is the lenses through which you see all of life and all of the world. I want to give you a good example. I'm stealing this straight from uh, Pastor James. He's our youth pastor here. And he uh, teaches on all kinds of subjects. And one of the subjects uh, that he had someone come in one time, he wanted to talk to the high school students about fornication. And Pastor James politely explained to this person that fornication doesn't mean anything to them. That word... The word is something that they just, they've never heard it before. So if you're going to speak in Martian, you're going to have to be ready for them to look at you and go, huh, what are you talking about? But then you get to the next step and you explain what in fact fornication is. And you explain how this is a bad thing now this is this may shock many of you in this room. Most of them can't understand why you think it 's a bad thing it's not in their worldview. They haven't even come to the thought that it might be something that isn't good is totally alien to them, and so what we need to do is we need to begin at ground zero and begin to explain a proper view of human sexuality so that they can come to terms with what this means and why fornication as a whole is a bad thing. That is the power of a worldview. When we tell people that they shouldn't be taking the Lord's name in vain. They, they they look at you like you're speaking Martian to them. You know, the, the big thing, I remember, I, I started coming to church as a late teenager. I remember the big thing was, if you wore a hat to church, it was just as bad as swearing. Some of you remember those days. Well... When I started going to church, I had no concept. I always wear a hat. I still do, unless I'm in church. <laughs> but wh- why would wearing a hat in church be a bad thing? Totally, completely ununderstandable. understandable I- I'm trying to explain by giving you some examples of how worldviews matter and why what we're talking about matters. Okay, we're going to keep throwing in some examples, but uh, just this is the setup. Now what I want to do is I want to give you just a couple of hints about where we're going to go with this. We're going to talk about worldview. This is uh, the first concept, and we're going to talk primarily about three different worldviews. The first one we're going to talk about tonight is naturalism, and it is the pervasive Western worldview. It's everywhere. Naturalism is assumed. And by the end of tonight, Lord willing, uh, we'll find out how we in the church, unfortunately, have been blindsided by naturalism. Then we're going to talk about postmodernism. Now, this is a word I'm sure you've heard bounced around quite a bit. And to be honest, I haven't decided I'm either going to do Christian theism, what we believe next week, or postmodernism, I haven't decided which order I'm going to do next week. You'll find out. And then we're going to talk, we're going to spend at least two weeks, maybe three weeks, talking about ethics. How do you make decisions about right and wrong? So that's where we're going. So let's look first. We're still in these notes. And no, I didn't leave you any place to write notes. I'm sorry, but that's where we're at. And I want to go over seven questions in fact the exact same questions i had on your survey hopefully you filled this out please do fill this out and put it in the box or bring it back during the week i'm going to need to turn this in for school (laughs) so i want to look at these seven questions and i want to give you the answer to these seven questions that a naturalist would give now i have to back up just for a second what on earth is a naturalist How many of you guys have ever heard of Stephen Hawking? How many of you heard of Carl Sagan? Carl Sagan is the epitome of a naturalist. He is the one who, in the beginning of his uh, famous show, uh, in some ways brilliant show, uh, Cosmos, said the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. That is one sentence a complete description of naturalism the cosmos they don't like to use the word universe anymore and they definitely don't like to use the word creation Uh, the cosmos is everything that is everything that was and everything that will be that if you believe that then that is the essence, the, the very core of what it means to be a naturalist. Okay, so with that, what I want to do is I want to answer these questions and kind of help you begin to understand the importance of these questions that we'll be spending several weeks in. First one, what is prime reality? What is the really real? Oh, in another note, I am... Most of the quotes are coming from this book, James Sire... This is the fourth edition, and I just got it in the mail yesterday. Woo-hoo! Uh, I had my uh, second edition for years. And anyways, uh, I'm, I'm taking my definitions, the answers to these questions, directly from this book. If you want to know a good book that will help you understand what do people think, it's called The Universe Next Door by James Sire. Uh, I love this guy. He... Uh, just writes really well. And if you really want to go crazy and lose your sanity, this is a brilliant book. It's called Naming the Elephant. And what he does is he talks about the concept of worldview and he helps in a very provocative way, helps us understand what worldviews are all about and why they're important for us as Christians to have a grasp. If you're only going to buy one of them, the universe next door is going to be far more helpful for just a pickup read, even though it's longer. Uh, the, the naming the elephant is a, is a step above in reading difficulty. So, what is prime reality? What is really real? The naturalist is going to say, Matter exists eternally and is all there is. God does not exist. Again, that's a quote from Sire. The naturalist is going to say that matter and energy is it, is everything. Matter and energy, there's nothing else. Now, I'm, I'm going to resist temptations to attack this worldview because I'm, I'm going to be doing that next week, but there are going to be times that I just can't resist. And this is one of them. If matter and energy are all that exist... Just on a scientific point of view, that's absurd. I mean, that's ridiculous. And I'll give you the prime example of why it's so ridiculous to hold that view nowadays. There is something in every single cell. You have approximately one trillion cells in your body. And in every single one of these cells, you have matter and energy at work. It's just the way the material universe Is working. But in the very center of each one of these trillion cells which compose your body is a nucleus, and inside this nucleus is something called DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. Um, And this deoxyribonucleic acid is uh, what gives the cell the ability, it gives it the knowledge, the wait for it, information to replicate, to grow, to become whatever part of the body it's designed, that's a Christian theist saying it, not a naturalist saying it, is designed to become. And this is one of the things we're studying in in our doctoral program, so I'm sorry if I get a little boring here, just hang with me. And that is this, Uh, recently, microbiologists have been studying the DNA, and for the last approximately 60 years, they understood the DNA as a string of instructions. And if you were able to cut little pieces of strings out, you would get, uh, I won't go in that much detail. Ultimately, what you would get are these proteins, and these proteins create the cells which then replicate. And so they, they just kind of thought of it as a, here's an instruction, there's an instruction, there's an instruction, and here it goes. Well, what they've discovered in the last 10 years or so is that there's all of this uh, strange things that are happening in the DNA. In other words, we'll get an amino acid from a codon here, a part of the DNA, and then they'll Skip two or three or four or five codons that would have made these amino acids which would have made the proteins which would have made the cells. Well, but they're, they're supposed to be in order and how do they know which to skip? And, and oh my goodness, how is it that it gets it right a trillion times in your body? And not only that, But how is it that the cell that's in your fingernail that has the exact same DNA as the cell that's in your brain? No, in this case, it's making a fingernail cell, and in this case, it's making a brain cell. Because the same DNA is everywhere in your body. The answer is information. The answer (coughs) is that as we believe there is a designer who designed this process who made matter and who made energy and these two are the fundamental building blocks of the natural world but in life in every single cell every single living cell there's information now we're also going to say, as Christian theists, we're also going to say there's spirit. And that's another thing. We'll get to that uh, in the next couple of weeks. But the point I want to make is the folly of naturalism, especially in the last 30 or 40 years, let alone the last 60 years when DNA was discovered. What is primary reality? The naturalist is going to say matter and energy. Then the second one is what is the nature of external reality. That is, the world around us. And there's a couple of things we need to understand. Uh, When the word universe is used by uh, philosophers, not necessarily scientists, but philosophers, they're talking about everything everything, every matter, every energy particle that's in the universe. And when we, as Christian theists, because we uh, contribute in these philosophical discussions as well, we use the term world, and what we mean by world is matter, energy, and then also uh, in the creation, we believe that there's spirit, and the spirit influences what is going on in the world around us. But the naturalist is going to answer question number two. And he's going to say, the cosmos exists as a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. There's three important concepts you need to get. Uniformity. The, the naturalist is going to say, things are happening now as they have always happened. And this is just the way it goes. And I just remembered a great naturalist verse. It's in uh, 2 Peter, where... Oh, I love this. I wish I would have remembered to look this up beforehand. Second um, Peter uh, chapter 3. And... Uh it says, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I love that. That's exactly what the naturalist says. They say everything is happening in uniformity. They don't change uh the causal relationship. But note, I love this is one of my favorite verses in uh the whole Bible because for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens were existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water and by the word of God. It says here, uh, I heard this pastor, he, he said, You know what the Greek means here in verse five, Second Peter 3, 5? For they deliberately overlooked this fact. It means they're dumb on purpose because they don't get it. They don't get it. So uniformity means that things have always happened the way they happen. And it's cause and effect. Cause and effect. Everything is cause and effect to a naturalist. And it's a closed system. There is a common misunderstanding of what's called the second law of thermodynamics. And the second law of thermodynamics is commonly misunderstood as Uh, The idea of entropy and everything is basically going down to fizzling out. And as a whole in the universe, that is true. Entropy means that atoms and molecules are shooting all over in different directions and they're not putting things together. And so, wrongly, Christians have criticized evolutionists and said, well, entropy, so evolution is impossible. Well... The idea of evolution, and evolution is 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 the primary belief system of the naturalist, is what the evolutionist is going to turn around and say is no, that is in a closed system where there is no outside energy. What is the source of energy to a naturalist for the earth? Someone tell me. The sun. Someone back there said it. It's the sun. And the sun is pouring all this energy into us, and, and the naturalist the evolutionist is going to say that 's why we 're not in a closed system because we have energy coming from the outside. They would furthermore say we also have energy coming up from the underneath because of we have a molten uh, core at the beginning at the center of our planet, but the naturalist wants to say that. In the universe, the universe as a whole is a closed system. And specifically what they mean by that is there is no God. Do you get that? There is no spiritual reality. I don't have time to go into the many problems that are going on in that because the next question, number three, is even more important on our daily life, and that is what is a human being? A human being, according to the naturalist, are complex machines. Personality is an interrelation of chemical and physical properties we do not yet fully understand. The naturalist is going to say that you don't make any free decisions man, I would love to spend a whole lot more time on this because what, go back to this cause and effect thing, the cause and effect happening inside your brain is merely, is only, there's nothing else involved inside your brain other than chemicals and electronics bouncing each other back around. And so whatever happens is just the way it is. So you have no choice. Can you just think of 20 problems with that off the top of your head? The the first one is, okay, If there is if that's all that's going on inside of our head, then why do we have prisons? Because those people had no choice but to make the decision that they made. I mean, just right off the top. Without even thinking about this, and among the many other things that is being attacked in our country, is the whole penal system is being attacked. It doesn't, doesn't get a whole lot of press, but b- because these things are just natural, in fact, one, uh, one of the uh, famous atheists that's going around right now went so far as to say that rape is a natural thing and basically implied, well, you just shouldn't get all uptight about it. You know, should protect yourself because you don't want to have that happen to you. But it's just the way evolution works. That's where the system goes. That's where this naturalist naturalism heads because what they've done is they've defined human beings merely as machines. And that, I think, is is the primary one where we are seeing Satan attack us the most of these seven questions right now. They're, they're, that's obviously not the only one. I don't want to indicate that it is. What happens to a person at death? This isn't going to surprise you. You've, you've heard this. You know, you're know you going to become worm food in the ground. Basically, at death, it's the end. That's what the naturalist believes. They, they, Whatever is going on up here, it just stops, and you're done. Which is why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, He says we do not grieve as others grieve who have no hope because at death their hope is zilch. Nothing. It's it's very sad to me when I listen to my own dad talk about death because he has no hope. He has nothing. That should break all of our hearts. Uh, I am not going to be able to do justice to, to number five, probably uh, for this whole series, but why is it possible to know anything at all? I, I've taken this quote from a website, naturalisms.org, uh, so I'm just going to read it, and if you have any questions, I'd love to talk to you about this, but I'm not going to have time to, to go into it in depth. Naturalism is usually defined most briefly as the philosophical conclusion that the only reality is nature. That gets back to question number one as gradually discovered by our intelligence using the tools of experience, reason, and science. Uh, I'm I'm toying with the idea of my sixth sermon is going to be on knowledge. And if we do that, then I will be showing the fallacy of finding that knowledge is experience, reason, and science. Uh, But it just can't be. there's, There's so much more to knowledge. And primarily... It's relational. Uh, if you're looking for the correct answer on your philosophy test, knowledge is justified true belief, and that is true. I'm not going to deny that. But primarily, knowledge is a relationship. Again, I don't have time. Please ask me about that because I would love to go crazy on that subject. Uh, number six: How do we know what is right and wrong? We're going to spend at least three weeks, two two or three weeks on this. Uh, but ethics is related only to human beings. What? he's saying there the naturalist is saying is that there is no god there are no universal laws and ultimately what is right or wrong depends on humans and or humans in society in in a in a cultural format again uh, we will be talking about that once we get to ethics And what is the meaning of human history? History is a linear stream of events linked by cause and effect, but without an overarching purpose. Okay, so that is, in a nutshell, what a naturalist believes. Now, what I want you to be able to do, I'm I'm not done yet, but what I want you to be able to do is I want you to be able to go home and read this, and I want you to be able to, by their answers, I want you to think in terms of why are these questions important, and even begin to think and ask the Holy Spirit to enable you to think, because he will, he wants to, and think through, before I give you the Christian theist answer, what would I say to that? What would I say to the fact that a naturalist is going to say, well, history is meaningless. It's in a straight line, and and it's going to be done, and nothing how would i answer that how do i give a hope how, how do i give a reason for the hope that's within me but what i want to do with my time that's quickly running out is i want to look at how naturalism which is the air we walk through i can't emphasize enough this belief system is the pervasive system. When you watch TV, you will get postmodernism, but you'll get naturalism. When you go to school, when you talk to your people at work who have never thought about these, what you're going to get is naturalism. That's, That's just what you breathe. And unfortunately, because the church has not talked a lot about this, a fact that I'm attempting to remedy right now, We have allowed naturalistic thoughts to permeate our Christianity. And I think more, uh, I'm simplifying here, but two things have happened because of this. And one is practicing atheism. I think, I am convinced that there are many Christians who are legitimate Christians, who are born-again Christians, who are practicing atheists. Ask yourself if you fall into any of these four categories. You don't pray. Now, if you are a true Christian, you're going to hear that and you're going to say, man, I don't pray enough. Okay, that's all of us, all right? But there are people that you know who call themselves Christians who don't pray. That is practicing atheism, doesn't believe or even know the Bible. Oh, yeah, the Bible. Yeah, that's a really cool book. Have you ever read it? Oh, yeah, I've read parts of it. That's practicing atheism. Because you don't really believe that God has communicated himself through this. If you really believed that the book on your nightstand was God communicating to you, you would read it. Now, that's not a guilt trip, okay, guys? I'm not putting a guilt trip on you. I'm going to give you the solution in just a minute trying to outline the problem right now. A practicing atheist doesn't use the word fellowship. This is one of my soapboxes. You guys heard me say this enough. Fellowship is not talking about football, right? Do you guys know that? Because if I, if I don't have this group of the church knowing with the bottom of their heart that fellowship is not talking about football scores, then I've, I've lost Fellowship is sharpening each other. Fellowship is getting into each other's face and saying, how is your relationship with your wife? Where are you struggling with your kids right now? And listening to the answer. Practical atheism is a person who doesn't give money, let alone the self, to anyone or anything without a payoff. Now, I threw out this word probably a month ago, this phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism, and I explained it to you. If you want to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you about it. But moralistic therapeutic deism is a person who prays, a deist is a person who prays only when they're in trouble. Man, that was me for the first 18 years of my life. And then I finally realized, I remember praying, God, I want to have a relationship with you. I don't want to just call it you, on you when I'm in trouble. A deist is one who reads the Bible like taking a pill. Okay, Pastor Greg says i got to read this. Okay, so let's open up to 1 Chronicles. Don't read your Bible like taking a pill. If all you can do is read a little bit and enjoy it, start there. Oh, the deist, actually, I, I, I got ahead of myself. Th- thinks fellowship is talking about football or talking about men, talking about football. Ladies, you're not off the hook. The guys may be in the other room talking about football, but you're in this room talking about the guys talking about football. That's not fellowship. A a moralistic therapeutic deist is someone who serves because a sufficient guilt trip was used. Don't go to the next slide yet. I want you to have a sense of the weight of this problem. The problem is that it infects every single one of us. The problem is that naturalism, because it's in the air we breathe, because it's in the ocean that we swim through like fish, It infects us and it becomes a cancer. And if we're not paying attention to it, it will take over. Oh my goodness! What do I do? What do I do? Well, one thing that you can do is get informed. Find out what are the worldviews that I hear read books like the universe next door so when you're watching television or when you're talking to your coworker you can understand what's behind what they're saying and little red flags will be going off inside your brain saying uh oh, wait hold you can't say that and then you'll be able to point out the fallacy in their thinking my goodness my friends this is what god wants to do you are his soldiers He will enable you to do this. I promise. If he can take someone as dense as my father's son, he can use anybody. But that's not the whole solution. This this is the good part. That That was the bad news, right? Now we get to the good news. What's the solution? This is the solution. Next one. I love this. Rehearse the gospel. Retell the gospel. Recite the good news. Repeat the gospel. Reiterate the good news. Preach the good news to yourself. Pastor Benji was able to come to grace because I said he could because he reads the same books that I do. <laughs> Jerry Bridges, John Piper. Actually, the real reason why Pastor Benji was able to come is because he's wise enough to know that the best book in the Bible is 2 Corinthians. So, I'm just saying. Uh, (laughs) this, This is the solution. The solution is exactly what we heard this morning. When you are reiterating, I had to look up in a thesaurus some more. When you're reiterating the good news of Jesus Christ to yourself, you're hearing this. You are going to be able to hear when the world lies. And even if you don't have all the knowledge, you're going to know what's wrong with it. And then you start giving yourself some of this knowledge, and the grace of God working in you and through you is going to make you able to combat the lies of Satan. Come back. Tell your friends to come back. It's only going to get more interesting. I had to really kind of compress everything, and I still took longer than I should have because I had other things going on. But come back. We are going to have a lot of fun doing this and please 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 send me emails ask me questions it it will influence what i talk about because if i don't know what is important to you i won't know how to address it but right now let's talk to our father because father you are the great god who is above and beyond all human so-called wisdom and knowledge lord you have used us to be the people who will speak the good news of Jesus Christ in clear and relevant ways so that people will understand. And because they understand, they will have the opportunity by the grace of God to receive that grace and become uh, like us, ones who serve the creator of the universe. Bless us, Jesus, and help us to be a blessing. is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebout.net.